Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop. This is Mike, and I am without any of our regular co-hosts this week, but I do have a special guest with us, John D'Angelo with Red Gin Productions. How you doing, John? Good, good, good. How are you? I'm doing great. And John is here to talk designer to designer about uh, designing games and putting them on Kickstarter, but also specifically uh, Red Gin Productions' first big game. Actually, is this your first Kickstarter overall? It is, yes, yes. I've backed a bunch. First one I've made. Yeah. And their first Kickstarter, the Rune Lords board game, is currently on Kickstarter as of the airing of this episode. We'll have a link to the Kickstarter page in the show notes. So we're going to be talking about that, talking about designing games, talking about whatever comes to our mind. Uh, Should be a really good time. But before we get to that, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon supporters. This week, we'd like to thank Kirk Gardner, a co-op fan, Rob Tapfield, a co-op lover, and Marco Finnis, a co-op fan. And thank you to you three, all of our Patreon supporters, and everyone who's on the Slack, everyone who contributes, comments on our videos, uh, any way you kind of join the conversation for the One Stop Co-op Shop. We appreciate you, and we value you. All right, with all that out of the way, John, how are you doing? Are we recording this the night before the Rune Lords board game Kickstarter launches? I'm sure you're just feeling completely calm, right, man? <laughs> yeah, it's a three years of work comes down to a click. So strange. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I cannot even imagine. Well, I can kind of imagine. <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we've done the same thing. We've worked on a game for years and then <laughs> put it on Kickstarter. But yeah, it's, it's been a while and man, that is exciting and frightening. We want to, of course, get into the Rune Lords board game. But before that, let's just kind of learn a bit about you. So uh, first, how did you get into gaming? And then once we're past that, we, I'd also like to hear about how you got into designing and, and doing this crazy thing of trying to publish your own game. Uh, yeah, so so gaming for me was uh, pretty immediate. Um, just when I was when I was younger, I moved to a very very small town at a very young age, and uh, you can kind of see that's the that's sort of the fertile grounds for gaming. Um, and at that time, it was it was pretty much just Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop RPGs. Um, I remember the year I got into gaming, uh, I drove. Uh, from where I was living in Ocala, Florida, to Gainesville to pick up the first fresh copy of Dark Sun campaign setting for Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, so that, yes. was the, that was the time frame that I was really diving in. So, And then from there, it just turned into the natural progression of things for the gaming industry. I went into Magic the Gathering and then, and then uh, from there. So that was how I got into it. It's just small town syndrome. Yeah, no, I, I've, I have a very similar story. <laughs> Magic the Gathering, Legends of the Five Rings card game. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I had a game store near my high school. That I actually worked at for a while, so that's when I really got like deep into the hobby. But uh, yeah, now how about designing games? I mean, that's a I know it was a huge jump for me and for Peter to kind of be like, "Hey, we like playing games. Let's make our own." So, uh, how, how did that come about for you? What you know, I, I think it's always sort of a wild decision. Uh, how, how'd you make that one? So, um, my primary background being in in music and film and cinema, that whole like uh, that side of the creative entertainment industry side. My downtime during those was primarily to do gaming, and the reason I'm saying that is because uh, my production company aspects, my my aspirations to get the production company to be able to make narrative content, tell stories, and and you know just bringing the Regin Production Studio to something in the light. I 
I knew that gaming was an incredible way of doing the narrative. Uh, in fact, arguably maybe some of the best because you can you can sort of lose yourself in the immersiveness of it. And to sort of make sure that I crossed all my T's and dotted my I's, I went ahead and, and put myself through an accelerated course to learn Unity video game design. And I did it in a very short period of time. And I don't I don't recommend anybody doing that. That was a very stressful, <laughs> stressful six months. <laughs> but I did it because I wanted to make sure that I had the foundation in place to be able to sustain the creation of a game uh, entirely on my own, just in case. You know, I knew I was going to network and meet great people, and I knew that a lot of gamers out there want to make a game, but I didn't want to be reliant upon other people, right? So when I got into the Unity thing, I knew I was going to try and make something accessible. And I'm not saying that a board game, a digital board game, is easy by no stretch. Is that the case? A digital board game is is a ton of code and it's a ton of uh, like uh, gooey and crazy interactivity going on under the hood on a digital board game. But it is a smaller sample size of 3D models and all the other stuff that goes into making some of the larger AAA stuff. So that leads me to the final answer of your question is I took the board game that I was making digitally and decided then to just say, screw it, my first game's just going to, it's a board game anyway, uh, I might as well just bring it to the table, just pour it to the table, and then I can make a digital version of this later. And then that's how I ended up into the board game space. So it was never like me going out from the beginning and saying, I want to make a board game. It was me knowing that I wanted to make a great game, and then I found my way to the table. And that's kind of how that went. Oh, that's really cool. That's that's a pretty unique story. I, I don't think I've talked to a designer before that started digital and went to tabletop. That's great. Now, I'm assuming, and, and we might get into this when we talk about the game, but I'm assuming that had some influence on the design itself because clearly a, a video game implementation can have a lot, like you said, running under the hood that might remove things that the players would have to track. So was it a more... <laughs> well, you know what? Let me save this question for when we actually hear oh. about the game. So why don't you talk about what the Rune Lords board game is? I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm like, hey, y'all don't even know listening what the game is, but let's talk about the design of it. So uh, g- give me the elevator pitch of the Rune Lords board game, then we can talk about uh, it. Great. No, so the Rune Lords board game is a hybrid fantasy gaming experience for one to four players. And it's a skirmish game at its core, a hex-based driven uh, skirmish game at its kind of at its core. But it is enhanced by the depth of a CCG meta type of environment. So you have cards that you're playing to support the cards, uh, to support the recruits that are actually on the battlefield. And those cards sort of exist in this ever-evolving meta, very much like a CCG would. It's kind of like D&D meets MTG meets 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 right and so it's just sort of all the things that I love and I'm passionate about and that I care about very much into one into one project but that is what it is it's a skirmish game with dudes on a map and and you support them with powerful combinations and cards awesome and for context uh, you might have heard us talk about the Ruin Lords board game on our PAX episode a little while back but both Peter and I met John at uh, PAX Unlimited and we got a chance to play the Rune Lords. Now, we played a competitive, but y'all know this is the one-stop co-op cast, or one-stop co-op shop podcast. <laughs> I forget if we're co-op, whatever. Uh, so, John, uh, talk about the different modes of the game, because I know you've definitely got the competitive kind of skirmish thing, but what else is in there that might uh, explain why you're on our episode? Sure, sure. So the one-to-four-player part uh, is probably 
arguably my favorite aspect of the game is the fact that you can play this solo or cooperative against the AI system that's built right inside, uh, right under the hood of the game. And the AI functions as close to how the regular game would function as we could possibly design it. It was constant iteration after iteration after iteration. So when you learn to play the AI, after you learn how to play the core game, the competitive aspects of the game, it feels right at home. Nothing is different. You know, uh, recruits, they all, they draw cards and equipment and they behave very much the same. They move the same. So uh, that being said, we were able now with that AI system to sort of like let the rules get out of the way and then just sort of explore story. How can we let the game itself compete against players it's not just a byproduct and sort of an afterthought like, oh, yeah, we, we also want one player and two player uh, versions of the game as well. We really wanted it to, to feel very much like those were uh, priorities because they absolutely were. Um, and a little bit of how solo itself plays. Um, uh, actually, I, I'll, I'll take a step back from that. I will say solo and co-op. So solo and co-op is done through what's called adventures. And adventures behave very much like scenarios in other games, where you would just look through a uh, section in the rulebook where it has various setups and very quick narrative backgrounds where it just explains why you're on the map and who you're fighting and why you're fighting them. And then you'll just do the setup, and it's like a puzzle. You know, you have your recruits, you lay them out, and then you try and satisfy the win conditions and defeat the boss, so to speak, right? And that's kind of how solo co-op works together on adventures. And that is core game. That launches no matter what. That is part of the game base. Now, solo legacy, on the other hand, is something that we're hoping to strive to get to through stretch goals and and build our team to be able to do it properly. And legacy play is going to take the deck building aspect of our game, which we haven't spoken about yet, but it's going to take the deck building aspect of our game and it's going to allow you to run through stories as you're building your deck. And then you go into the battlefield and fight the boss. So again, it's a design that feels like every other version of the game that you're playing. Nothing seems totally like you have to relearn a whole new game. But that being said, you get to do really cool stuff when you do the deck builder in story. When you have a storybook driving it, you can meet new characters, add unique cards to the stores. For example, if uh, one of the bosses in one of these stories happens to re require you to collect several of these particular items to help defeat them, those can go into the store. Uh, and when you're playing in a regular two-player or a three- or four-player deck builder, you would never need to do those types of things. You would just be buying recruits. But you get to do really cool, unique stuff with the solo legacy stuff. And what you earn, you keep, move on to the next story, and so on. And then when you've completed that campaign, you're done. You can try a new campaign, and it allows us to uh, release really cool uh, um, uh, all-in packages when we release new Rune Lords. We can have new storybooks and things like that. So there's solo legacy, which we, we're striving for, and then there's solo co-op adventures, which are base. Yeah, and I gotta say, from what you showed us at PAX, even of the kind of hopes for the solo legacy. I really hope y'all have enough success to make that happen because I'm really excited by that uh, form of play. But the the solo co-op with no campaign where it's just kind of a one-off looks really fun too. Now, you mentioned it's a skirmish game. Uh, why don't you talk through kind of how a turn runs and some of the core mechanics? Like one thing I really enjoyed at our playthrough was the attacking and kind of the different uh, target values for attacking. So what, what kind of happens on a turn? Like, how, how does the game play? So if we, if we hold off to discuss the deck builder aspect of the game, which is one of the largest asked about components, but if we hold off on that, we just talk about just combat. Uh, how that plays out is 
we alternate. We get to we get to choose. We have a deployment zones uh, uh, deployment board with four zones on it, and then we get to draw from a reinforcement deck and fill those deployment zones with guys. And then they get standees. They go out on the battlefield. So nothing new there. Uh, and then as we activate them individually, we're going to do that in an initiative order that gets to be set every management. So every round, all players get to choose the new order based off of what's going on on the battlefield. So if somebody needs to be healed because they're about to die, then you definitely want to make them go first. Uh, if somebody uh, on the other side of the battlefield uh, needs you know, X amount of damage to get them off the battlefield, then you want to attack them first and so on. And then there's a thing in the game called priority that allows you to change that. So you can, you can gift priority to people with cards or some things just have it innately. And that breaks the A, B, and C stack. So there's really cool stuff you can do with initiative order in the game. Yeah, and, and two, just to butt in for a second, uh, the A, B, and C stack, just from what I remember at our playthrough, the game generally only has, except for like little minions you might summon, they only have like maybe three or four main units for each side active at a time, right? Yes, and you never activate more than one guy at a time. And that and that is sort of like an interesting thing. And I, and I know as a, as a designer, this is, you can definitely speak on this, I'm sure. But um, the optics of your game is sometimes unavoidable. It's really hard to make people see something that they just don't see right away on their own. And generally speaking, when you look at a game that has a bunch of guys out all at once, it seems like there's a lot going on. But then when you, the second you realize that you're only driving one car at a time, like you're literally only controlling one recruit at a time, and they have very limited actions that they can take, you, you realize very quickly that you don't have to worry about all the other stuff going on at the same time because it's not happening all at once. So yes, and what you said is correct. There's only four that'll ever be out on a player at a time. And then digging deeper, you can only, you can only control one at a time. All right, so on a character's turn, they get activated. I know you have a, like a few different actions each character can take. So what's like kind of the basics there? Yeah. So uh, every time that you activate a dude, you do three very quick things. Every time you activate them, it, com it becomes a rinse and repeat. You're going to get influence that's denoted on their card and that's money. You can use that to do cool abilities and it's just a currency to do cool stuff. And then you're going to draw a support card, which goes into your hand. So now you have some gotcha mechanics and then you, if you don't, and if you don't play it on that guy, you get to keep it for the next dude and the next dude, so on. And then the third thing you'll do is set their battle stance, uh, offense or defense. And that's it. So you get money, draw a card, set battle stance. You do this every time you activate a guy. And then once they're ready to activate and you've done that ready phase, um, it, they're ready to take one of three actions, or they're ready to take um, up to three actions. They have a utility action, an attack action, and a movement action. Anybody that's ever played XCOM or Dungeons and Dragons even with free actions and so on, um, it's just an action point system. Once you've spent your green movement action, you see the green icon on things that let you do those things at the cost of a green. If you've already spent it, then you can't do that again. And you realize very quickly that like you're very limited on what you can do. You only have very set options that you have access to for that one guy at that time. And when you're done spending actions, that completion's done, you, that activation's done, and then you move on to the next character in the initiative order. So. Once you know the game, uh, one activation should never take longer than 30 seconds. It should never take longer than 30 seconds. Yeah, and I can verify that even halfway through our play. It was very, very quick and very smooth. And by the way, for those listening, uh, we are getting... Is it one of the only demos, I would assume? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> yes, we had six 
We had six made. That was it. Then that was the target number. And then they've kind of all gone out. Like one went to Australia, one went to the UK, and then you know we had all over the country. And and um, and then you are getting the exclusive take on the solo. So we're getting that out to you, so you can you can get us that. That'd be great. Yeah. So we will have video of the game in action, so you can kind of see all the stuff. And I'm sure if you go to the Kickstarter page, you'll be able to see uh, John explaining some of the things as well. So yes, uh, but. I remember one of the cool things with like these actions is that each of the units they each have their own card. And again, you only have like three or four cards to look at at a time, but they have some really nice kind of variance and uniqueness from unit to unit, like special movement abilities or uh, the utility actions you talked about. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was very impressed with kind of how diverse your squad could become, like guys who are great defenders, guys who are great archers, you know, all the archetypes you might expect. Sure, sure. The game. Mm-hmm. They're definitely the tropes, and, and uh, yeah, we did not shy away from the tropes. Even though there's a lot of unique stuff going on in the game, uh, we embraced everything that people are familiar with, for sure. <laughs> we definitely didn't run from those. So we've kind of talked about the skirmish, and I know in the adventures you'll have, like, uh, remind me, don't you have objectives to complete, and that kind of makes the boss come out? Is that sort of how it usually works? Yeah, so in The Unrighteous Prince, which is one of the adventures that are in the core game, uh, he doesn't show up until round three. So you have a set number of rounds where you can just, and there's a bunch of supply crates that are being destroyed by his guys, and basically you're being hired to set a trap to kill this dude. And he's not quite there yet so when you when you just have to sort of keep the onslaught of his recruits and his uh all these villains they're all called villains you have to keep the villains and the villain uh, mercenaries from destroying these crates Uh, and then if you can keep that from happening then he shows up and then you've got to kill him so if you can if you can keep the crates alive long enough to kill the boss then you win that particular scenario right so yeah i definitely like that that it's not just full-on Kill, kill, kill. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Some other things to consider. Now, we should probably talk a bit about the theme, because this is based on a book series, right? And that kind of plays into something we haven't mentioned yet, which is that each character is controlling a rune lord, which is sort of like their general slash wizard, was the sense I got. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's like the leader of their group. So can you talk a little bit about the uh, inspiring source material and who these rune lords are that you're controlling? Uh, sure. So uh, David Farland and I communicated... Uh, about working on this game after I had made the decision to make a game and a video game in the first place. So when I had when I had started my discussions with David, he knew I was making a game, and I knew that this game could function perfectly within his world. So the source material ends at the fact that it's the same world, it's the same locations, it's the same magic system. Uh, runes and rune magic all work the way that they do in the books. But you don't meet any of the characters in this particular version. We are looking forward to, and that was definitely by design, we, would, we really look forward to being able to, to create a fan base for these books that have been out for so long, rekindle some of that energy uh, behind the property, get people to read the first few books, and then when they fall in love with those characters and they see where the game uh, sort of is placed, then it's sort of more exciting. Then you get to meet the characters in future expansions. So the lore uh, was a guideline, and we sort of just ran things by him and made sure that we didn't break any of his like his lore and we didn't we didn't make any mistakes uh, in some of the. There's a creature in the in the books called a Strengisat, right? Like, you got to make sure you talk to the author about how you say that word, right? And how you spell it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed. It's, it sounds like you uh, practiced that pronunciation. A few uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, and to be fair, I 
I had read the first book when I was in high school, so I knew what The Rune Lords was before I spoke with David Farland. I did not read beyond the first book, though. So I had fond memories of the first book, and then I just never followed up on it. And then uh, when I started making these games, audiobooks are now the way that I ingest all of my fiction. Uh, for some reason, I still read anything nonfiction or anything like that. I, I still do that with hardcover. But fiction, I, I digest with audiobooks. Uh, I just took in the entire series in a very short period of time, just book after book after book. When it comes to pronunciation and spelling and things like that, I realized very quickly, like that creature, for example, that I mentioned, I didn't even know where in the books to look it up. Right? Like, I knew it. I knew what he did. I knew everything about the guy, but I didn't know on what page to go look to see how to spell that one word. Um, and then you can't Google something you don't know how to spell, so it's like most of the time. So it was tough. Yeah, so that was uh, like getting getting the lore uh, behind the design was definitely something that I had to hit the brakes and make sure that, that we did it properly because uh, that was a lot. Eight books is a lot to, to take in before you can move on. Yeah. Now, uh, before we get, we do need to talk to the about the the kind of card based aspect of the game. But we didn't mention how attack rolling worked, and I personally really enjoyed that. So, just give kind of the quick spiel on that. Yeah. So when you attack, uh, attacks are broken up into uh, three sections. Uh, they're like tiers of attack. If you, the only way to miss in the board in the board game at all, and the only way to miss in the Rune Lords board game is to roll a one. That is the only way. A two or better is always going to result in the basic damage that is shown on the card. So you'll always be moving the game forward and rewarded for, like, strategic positioning, right? So this is not a game, this is not D&D where you can swing back and forth with each other for 15 combat rounds. No, so, no, you're moving, you're dealing damage. And to be, and to take it even farther, there are equipment tokens in the game that can actually enhance your basic damage, right? So there's still ways of actually buffing or mitigating um, in either direction there for even basic damage. So you, that's even not necessarily beholden. But it, then if you meet or beat the target's defense then it, it, it graduates to an advance, and it shows that very clearly on the card in a green section, and you get to do both the basic damage and the effect. And then if you roll a natural number on the dice or better than the, the critical threshold shown on the card, you get their critical effect as well. It's a, it's a graduating type of attack system. Yeah, I mean, I like that. Again, it gave a lot of uniqueness because there were guys who, like, shoved people when they got that advance attack and stuff, but... Definitely appreciate that it's basically impossible to miss, or <laughs> nearly impossible. Yes, nearly impossible, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, now let's get into, you've talked a lot about how there's kind of some Magic the Gathering stuff in here. So uh, you get these cards whenever you activate a unit, and uh, you can play them on the units to boost them. Talk a bit more about the cards, and I guess there's, there's also kind of a card collection, or not card collection, but card uh, choice kind of drafting sort of thing in actually building your army too, right? Yes, and that is, if if I were to say what is the one aspect of this game that is truly unique, it is 100% the answer is sovereignty. And the sovereignty stage of play is not mandatory. Every Rune Lord has a pre-generated build. You just pick your Rune Lord, take the cards that are shown right on their ability card, on the back of their, uh, of their ability uh, dashboard, you'll see a, a nice, beautiful portrait, and then you'll see all of the cards that uh, exist in their army. And then you just take those cards... And you just battle. And every Rune Lord also has an icon, so it makes sorting the cards very easy. So you can just look for the, the icons on those cards when, you've, when you're ready to put it back in the box. And then you can just fight. However, Sovereignty Stage lets you take a step back from that. 
and it lets you take all of the cards from your Rune Lord, all of the cards from your opposing Rune Lord, up to four players can do this all at once, and you take all of those cards and you mix them together into a singular resource management deck building engine. And this is not just a simple um, pick your card, take your turn, draft drafting. This is, we took a very long time designing a proper Euro-style uh, deck building experience that is multifaceted and it truly makes you make decisions. Uh, not everything is always the obvious buy. The most powerful card on the, in the store isn't necessarily your best move. And then also as you're exploring the land and you're going between Kingdom Village and the wilds to recruit these guys, you can run into encounters that can kill cards from your hand, that can clog your hand with setbacks. But also if you defeat these encounters, you can get really cool uh, buffs on uh, on uh, influence and things like that. The other unique aspect of it is there's a worker placement mechanic that's going on the side of the sovereignty board where every round you're choosing where you want to travel to uh, go out and recruit these these recruits into your deck. And when you do so, you can get really cool discount cards that say, for example, I'll grab a card and it'll say, um, all monstrous recruits this round cost minus two influence. And then I look at the store and when I go to my purchase phase, I have that card in my inventory and I can choose to play it. And if there are two monstrous recruits available in the market, they're both at a discount. And that's an edge that I get because I chose to make that decision in the worker placement section of the game. So there's a, it is a fully proper functioning Euro experience in, in, the de- in the deck builder. And then you take the army that you built over those 12 rounds and you fight that way. And it mitigates RNG big time. Now, how long would that take on average for two players to get through the 12 rounds? Sure. Two players is 45 minutes and then add 15 minutes for each additional player. Yeah, that, that's that's about the time frame. So there's a thing called the intermission, which is just a three-step thing that you do where you just you make sure you sort out your, your recruits into their proper decks. And then once you've done that, you could stop play there if you wanted to. Uh, you, could, you could just, you know, pick it up at another time. You could meet at a local game store to do the battle, but you could be at a friend's house to do the deck build. Or you could just, of course, just plow through like we always do and, and play full experience. Yeah, and then if you have a if you do the skirmish, two players uh, is roughly it's about an hour and a half for two players to do a full skirmish, uh, and that's letting people like really be patient, make decisions. So it's a two hour experience, uh, roughly for for two players to do a deck builder into combat. But uh, four players, of course, can get as long as it takes. So you just open your so that's what we say on the book uh, in in the book. It says 180 minutes. It's, you know, it can get up there. Now, if you're playing a co-op adventure, do you just use the pre-built Rune Lord deck, or is there any way to kind of do the deck building within that uh, mode of game? Yeah, so uh, there's one uh, experience that we are we are designing, and some of these, hopefully, uh, they get unlocked in the stretch goals, so I don't want to necessarily say that this this particular one I'm about to mention is guaranteed to be in it, but we, we hope it is. <laughs> um, there is a really big, nasty spider monster, and that guy has a a, a ten round deck building phase before you fight him. And what's in the store are all of these antidote type things. And you're trying to save this girl before she's before she's killed. But she's been bit by this bit this creature, and you have to go and and kill this slay this creature in a certain amount of time to be able to make the proper antidote to save the girl. So we incorporate the deck builder into certain aspects of the adventures whenever we feel it fits best. And and then you could just two players could get together and then make all the right decisions. You're not competing with each other in that environment, and uh, and then you take that deck into combat. And now in your deck you have stuff that is specific for that boss, and then uh, and it kind of re- creates a really unique experience. 
Yeah, that sort of makes me think of uh, Samwise standing up to Shialab over, you know, Frodo's poison body. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's, it kind of looks like Shialab, to be honest with you, the painting does, yeah. I mean, like you said, you can play this game, it sounds like, if you're just not feeling the deck builder and don't want to ever learn that kind of additional mode, you don't need to, right? I mean, it, it sounds like it. Yeah. Just, just don't do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. You have a pre-generated, a pre-generated build. You can literally sit down and play this game in a third of the time you can play a Warhammer game, and which I'm a huge Warhammer fan as well. So um, any any of these things that I say that might sound a certain way, they're not. I have, my collection is pretty robust in games that I love. But not everybody has six hours or five hours, and not everybody has time to read an entire 40-page book on how to play their faction before they can sit down, right? And that's okay. I love that they do that because some people want just that. But at the same time, you, you, if you don't make those things mandatory, like what you're saying, I feel like that's sort of the ace in the sleeve. It's a complex game that you don't have to make complex if, you don't, if you're not looking for that. Wait, in a way, it almost sounds like the kind of thing that might be in an expansion, and you're just giving it to... Kickstarter backers as a built-in thing that's already been tested closely with the base like experience, right? What if we put a game out that is less than the depth that we feel the community deserves? There are so many brilliant people out there. People that say that a game is too heavy and they sit down and they just learn the game instantly and then they fall in love with it. We have 10-year-old kids that are just smoking this game. Like crazy because when they realize that it's it's just one guy at a time and it's just three actions you can spend and then you, you're done with that turn when they realize how simple it is then the game doesn't seem daunting and then after that once they get past that point then we say oh and also for the single price of this game you're getting all of these extra game modes and we want to promise that up front because we want people to understand that we respect the investment they're making we're not trying to like skimp and then come back for more money later just by adding another rune lord and one more game mode yeah give us another 60 dollars for two game modes it's like right. that doesn't seem right to, to strip us. out something that you feel is like core to your ideal vision of the game just to charge people later for it no way no way there's no and and there's no reason to do it it's not like financially uh, you know cards and, um, and there's a reason why we're able to get our price point in a game that's skirmish that has an entire deck builder with all the cards and all the components for us to, f after two and a half years of going back and forth with E-Star Games, we've been able to, to get this to where we can get this game out for $70. That's going to be our, our backer price when you, when it goes live. And for us to be able to do that with all of these game modes is because we didn't do minis. We didn't make you have to buy minis. We did standees, PVC plastic to keep shipping weight down. You can stack. Every standee in our game, you can stack in about an inch and a half to two inch stack in your fingers. And it weighs next to nothing because it's PVC. And they're durable. You can put them in and out of the stands infinitely, basically. Um, and it's just a better take on it's not chipboard standees making a game weigh, you know, 25 pounds. Because we're able to do it for that price, we're giving you replayability. I, I feel, anyway, I feel we're giving replayability to the game. Well, sure, I guess if you... If you had done miniatures, you'd have to drastically cut. You'd probably only be able to have, like, two Rune Lords in the base game or something, or it'd be a $150 game, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, or it'd be a $150 game, yeah. And we are doing add-ons for the core Rune Lords. People will have the option. So we also wanted to show the community that we were serious, so we invested in the sculpts. We invested in the, the proper files. We've had all of the negotiations with manufacturing, so we're totally ready to provide the minis. But uh, just because we invested in on our end... 
to make these minis doesn't mean that we're making it mandatory for you, the, for the public, to have to buy them just so that we can get out of some financial hold. That that is an investment we made. Um, we just want to, and we're going to have them as as add-ons. That that's been probably my favorite trend in kind of like adventure and you know sort of RPG board game experiences in recent years. I guess Gloomhaven probably gets a lot of the credit for making standees seem swanky and cool again. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's yeah, it's important, man. I feel like I don't even have room on my shelves anymore. Oh, it's like well, and also, I mean, just personally, I'm terrible with like building minis and painting minis. Like my, I play Kingdom Death Monster, but I just have like six minis built, and all the rest are just sitting on their sprues. You know? <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm with you. I'm, I'm very excited about any game that has standees, and I can just jump in and play and recognize who everybody is and have a lot of variety. But I love minis. Don't get me wrong. Oh, no, no, <laughs> I, love I, mean, <laughs> I love everything about them. Yes. Yeah, I've, I, I was a 40k player a billion years ago, but I've definitely kind of gone away from the miniature uh, over the years since then. I think that's that's probably a good overview for the Rune Lords board game. We'll have more on the YouTube channel coming. And I mean, really, thanks for getting into the design of it and kind of going over the basics. So uh, you had mentioned that you know, <laughs> clearly you have some anxiety and trepidation with starting the Kickstarter, and this is your first Kickstarter. Uh, Peter and I have been involved in two, not as a publisher, but just as the designer, for the uh, the positives, the beautiful, beautiful positives of it, and also the crushing, crushing psychological negatives of Kickstarter. So what are what are kind of your feelings uh, about the, the platform, about your... Uh, you know, tomorrow starting on there, and what are you what are you expecting? What are you hoping for? What are you afraid of? Like, what 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 are your thoughts going into it? Well, I got I gotta say, so so if you take all of the the financial investment that causes the anxiety, right? If you take away the is the game good enough? What are people gonna think? Anxiety, and you remove that as well. You gotta sort of find the positive. At least that's how I've been feeling, right? Did you do everything that you could? Did you make the best game that you could? And what honestly is making me kind of feel a little more calm uh, before the storm here is how much I love the Kickstarter community in general and that I've been a part of it for so long and that it's like if it funds, then it funds. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. And I know that that's as honest as it gets, right? There's nothing – it's not like I'm bringing my game to a big publisher and then that the guy that I happen to be sitting with at that particular time just happens to not be into skirmish games, but that's the only dude that I got to meet with. And then they say, oh, that game's not for us. Meanwhile, like, I'll never know whether or not the game could have actually been accepted by the publisher, right? It's like this is open-ended thing. You know, the musicians deal with it all the time. Did the right person listen to my music? It's an anxiety that you can't really get rid of. But with this Kickstarter and the way the community is and how honest they are, negative or positive, that's it. It's truth, right? Like, and, that, and that's something that I'm going to be able to live with. I'm going to be able to step away from this and go, hey, I, I contributed and hopefully I get to continue to do it, right? That's the goal. But I kind of came to terms with at least I'm going to know, you know, at least it's truth. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, that's, I, I, I can still vividly remember the extreme anxiety in both of our Kickstarter campaigns. And that's with me just being the designer. Like if the game didn't fund, I wasn't really out money. I mean, I was out years of my life of designing it, of course. Well, not out. I mean, it's not like the game just ceases to exist. But, you know, of course, I'm sure you feel the same way. You want We want people to play the dang game. You want people to experience, you know, and enjoy the thing that you've been sweating over for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? And it speaks to uh, finances too, right? It speaks to your investment. People want to say that, like, I have this game. But in reality, it's you bought this game, 
Like that's money out of your pocket. And if you never replay that game again, if it never comes off your shelf, then it's just a Calyx trophy, right? It's just a thing that's, it's just a thing. And that's okay. I mean, I, I know, I, I, ha- I heard some terrible statistic when I first got into board game design. Somebody told me that the, uh, the statistics say that the average board game is played once. And that scared me, obviously, right? Because that's not what I want for this game. Um, but, you know, so hopefully this gets away from that, that stigma. I think, I mean, I, I don't have any data to support this. I have to imagine the games that have solo play and are bought by people who play solo break that trend a little bit. You know what I mean? Because, yes, if I have to wait until game night and then I trot the game out and it's not a hit and the other people are like, I don't want to play that anymore. And then we move on to something else the next week. Then sure, I can see like totally, you know, one one play, you're done. But, you know, with with solo play, like I'm probably going to play that twice at my home to get ready to take it to game night. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then I'll still play it a few times when I come home. So, yeah, I mean... Clearly, I play all the games that I get five to ten times, if only for the review. Um, even games that I don't <laughs> enjoy very much. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that, that's when it feels more like a job. It's like, oh, this game. This game again. Okay, fine. <laughs> so, I, I guess we've kind of looked at the fears and how you've psychologically prepared yourself for <laughs> what, you know, how to withstand the potential damage. How about the positives? Uh, you've talked about how great the community can be and uh, what what sort of hopes and, and positive experiences are you hoping to have as the Kickstarter launches and people see the videos and eventually actually get to play the game down the line, hopefully? Uh, I think the, the biggest positive that I'm looking forward to uh, is being able to see to see what people do with the meta. Uh, I, I, there has yet to be a game that I've, that I've played and all of the playtesting that we've done, and there has been so much playtesting. Um, and I, I can't think of a single playthrough where I, I foresaw exactly how combat was going to go. That I saw that card getting drawn at that exact moment that did that exact combination that saved the game for me. Like I, You can never foresee those types of things in games like this. And that's what I'm hoping to see. I really want to see people posting moments, uh, sharing, uh, like crazy combinations with cards that even we didn't think of. Uh, you know, I, I was telling Sean this not too long ago that like, if we ever have to nerf a card, then we know we've made it right. Like that's, if we ever have to nerf a card because it's just breaking our game after hundreds of playthroughs and we didn't catch it, then, then, you know, we did something right. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that's great. And that does remind me, I saw a lot of just to kind of compliment you and what you've the work you've done so far, there was a lot of nice kind of cinematic dynamics in even the quick playthrough we had at PAX. Um, I remember distinctly just kind of talking about like the card draw and like which thing came out at which time. One of the first minions I got on the board was an archer and I ran him right up and there's like terrain and things you can climb. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. So I got him onto a tower to like have a commanding, <laughs> you know, view of the battlefield and just rain death upon everyone nearby and uh, Peter just happened to get this uh, hawk, you know, as his next draw. And the hawk can just, like, you know, basically teleport right next to my guy in the tower and start ripping his eyes out. So he can't really shoot very well after that. Um, you know, and, and how different would that play have been if he had gotten some tank that could have uh, blocked the damage from my archer for all the people around him or, or something else like that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the dynamics I witnessed in... Just a single pre-constructed two Rune Lord battle 
with none of this kind of like meta and other card options and other items and deck building or even the adventure with the AI doing different things, different objectives. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I wouldn't have agreed to uh, do videos on the game for the Kickstarter if I didn't uh, expect to enjoy it. I'm very looking forward to getting the demo and giving it a try and, and doing some videos and I mean, hopefully loving it. I, I, I always set out to love a game. <laughs> yeah, that's a great space. To, that's a great space to be because if the game the, and the game just has to deliver, like it just does, right? I mean, that sometimes sometimes uh, we do playthroughs and look. The only way you can miss in the Rune Lords board game is to roll a one, and it's no matter what you do, that D twenty can just come back and get you sometimes, and you know you can see the the one rolled uh, at the time that you really wish for the player would have been a hit. Because then, then the table would have erupted, yeah, and it would have erupted, and it would have just been the craziest, like, you drew a squire right then, and you got the piece of equipment from your armory that you needed at the exact moment, and, um, but then you rolled a one. <laughs> it's like, two or better, buddy. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, so I'm so excited. But yeah, John, uh, we're, we're getting a little bit long, and I know you've clearly been probably burning the midnight oil, getting everything ready, and probably still have more work after this for tomorrow's launch. Uh, anything else you want to kind of leave us with? A little uh, final message? And of course, by the time people are hearing this, the game will already have been going for about a week, and I guess we'll have a better picture of how things are going for it. Hopefully, uh, I'll go look as this episode is airing and see hundreds of thousands of dollars pledged. <laughs> But, but, but any any uh, kind of message to the future you want to send out as we kind of close things up here? Well, yeah, if, if at the time that I hear this, uh, I would like to know that um, one of the stretch goals that we're trying to reach uh, is is obviously legacy play. And if we can get into the legacy play, that would be that would mean so much to us because we have we have so many amazing stories that we want to tell with this system. Um, but then also like it's the we have some really great crossovers that we can't wait to announce. So if um, if you aren't on the on the in the newsletter then definitely uh, head over to the runelordsgame.com and get signed up for that because that's where we're going to be sending all of the updates for uh, really cool crossovers and there's two games that we are in love with as gamers that we are going to be doing some some character crossover theme crossover with so hopefully when i hear this uh, in a week or whatever uh, already made so much money and it won't even be exciting anymore people will be like yeah yeah i know about that <laughs> it'll yeah exactly exactly <laughs> All right, well, John D'Angelo, uh, thank you so much for coming on. And, man, I, I wish you the best, the absolute best tomorrow. Just designer to designer and Kickstarter creator to Kickstarter creator. It is a stressful time, man. And I hope I hope that you just blow it away because that is <laughs> such the, the best possible way you could go after all your years of work. Yeah, thank you so much. And for what you do to, for the community and every, everybody in your position that, that puts out content, we know the, all of the editing, all of the time, learning the rules, communicating – uh, setting up your schedule. Uh, it's just, it means the world to, it's what keeps the industry going. So thank you so much, man. All right, John. So uh, yeah, everyone go check out the Rune Lords board game on Kickstarter. We'll have a link to their website and to the Kickstarter page itself in the show notes and uh, check out the YouTube channel. I mean, actually, depending on how quickly you ship the prototype, it's possible I might have a video up when this episode airs. So uh, we'll see how, uh, how things go, but have an awesome uh, time with this. And yeah, I mean, I, I hope the best. Thank you so much again. I appreciate it, man. And bye-bye, One Stop Co-op Shop listeners. Uh, go check out the webpage, Kickstarter. Check out the YouTube channel. We should have some videos up there really soon if they're not already there. And thank you so much for listening. We will see you at the next stop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. 
If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. Thank you.